This is Solving Problems and Starting New Ones, a show that tries to be an incubator of great ideas and a place to challenge popular wisdom. Today, we're going to talk about what we can learn from the coronavirus, and we will continue talking about the education system with Chapter 3. And you'll get all this from a guy on the street perspective. Before we get to that, hit the subscribe button, follow, leave comments on Facebook, Instagram page. Do what you can, because every little bit helps. All right, before I hit the show in high gear, I got to give you the update on the 2020 presidential race of 2020. And we have something special for you today, an exclusive interview with Mr. Joe Biden. Take a listen. Not many people know I own the first radio in Springfield. Weren't much on the air then. Just Edison reciting the alphabet over and over. A, he'd say. Then B, C would usually follow. We can't bust heads like we used to, but we have our ways. One trick is to tell them stories that don't go anywhere. Like the time I caught the ferry over to Shelbyville. I needed a new heel for my shoe. So I decided to go to Morganville, which is what they call Shelbyville in those days. So I tied an onion to my belt, which was the style at the time. Now, to take the ferry cost a nickel, and in those days, nickels had pictures of bumblebees on them. Give me five bees for a quarter, you'd say. Now, where were we? Oh, yeah. The important thing was that I had an onion on my belt, which was a style at the time. They didn't have white onions because of the war. The only thing you could get was those big yellow ones. Ah, there's an interesting story behind this nickel. In 1957, I remember it was. I got up in the morning and made myself a piece of toast. I sent the toaster to three medium brown. He just wouldn't stop, folks. This has been your 2020 presidential race update of 2020. All right, let's get into it. The first topic is, what can we learn from the coronavirus and the shutdown? Because we are certainly exposing the weaknesses of our systems, our institutions, our communities, our own personal responsibilities, and there's been a blatant display of ignorance. So there's a lot to cover. And I'm going to do a deeper look into all this on the next episode. So, what's the first thing we can learn? Let's talk about money. And we've talked about this before in uh, episode four, I believe. We have to do a better job with saving money. Now, we're, we're living in a very unique situation right now with businesses being shut down. But by this point, you should have realized that we are living in a sophisticated economy, which is good. But the notion of job security is dead. Recessions happen, layoffs happen, business files for, uh, you know, business will file for bankruptcy. Sometimes they burn down. Maybe your job will get replaced with AI or some form of machinery. Virus or no virus, job security is dead. And it's been like that for quite a while. And we'll go over that deeper in our education segments later this year. Here's something that gets thrown around a lot. I can't save money because I live check to check. And for some of you, that's very true. And I've been there myself, and some of you, you try and save money, but as soon as you put money away, the car breaks down. Like I said, the statement is true for some, and maybe it's true for you. But there has been more than enough studies pointing out that the average millennial spends 
$850 a month on non-essential things. This begs the question, are you living check to check? Are you living well check to check? Can you do better? You have to look at your expenses. The same day you lose your job shouldn't be the same day you're worried about how to pay rent that month. You need to make decisions that may hurt when it comes to saving at least an emergency fund. Think about how much you need to save to survive for 30 days at least. And save that if and when this ever blows over. We can make excuses, we can blame everyone, but we have to ask ourselves, when does the blame end and the responsibility begin? Or, maybe I'm crazy, maybe you think it's a good idea to wait for Dr. Donald Trump to save the day. I don't know, maybe I have a little more faith in myself. Here's another thing that I've personally learned from a, uh, a meme. The meme says, and just like that, no one asks what a stay-at-home mom does all day. So I guess you just sit around watching porn all day, right? Here's something else I learned. While I was in Lowell, Massachusetts, I realized even people who wake up at 2.30 in the afternoon to a big bowl of crack every day and smokes two packs of cigarettes and drinks a 30 rack for dinner, for some reason, actually cares about getting the coronavirus. Why? Seriously, if you don't give a shit about your health, what are you worried about? I'm watching this guy high on meth walk up to one of those uh, don't walk buttons, you know, on the corner, and he pulls down his sleeve to cover up his hand before hitting the button. Like, now he's going to give a shit about his health? This is the thing he's not going to take any chances on? The world makes absolutely no sense to me. What else can we learn? Let's, let's talk about China. The country that has given us SARS, Asian flu, Hong Kong flu in the 60s, and my personal favorite, the bird flu. Maybe we should stop having the vast majority of our antibiotics and medical supplies produced in a communist regime. A regime that arrested doctors and whistleblowers for alerting the rest of the world about the, the upcoming crisis. They knew it was a problem in November. Even though a notice a week earlier would have led to significantly better outcomes in this country. And in early February, China's propaganda-filled media pushed forward that it was racist to blame China for the virus. A regime that put one million Muslims in re-education camps. And right now we have a mainstream media that's parroting their government. And they're letting that government off the hook. This relationship and dependency between the world and China must change when the dust settles. And we'll go deeper into that one in the next episode. Speaking of changes, where's all the animal rights groups? Shouldn't they be all over China's ass about the wet markets? For those who don't know, the wet markets sell your typical fare, beans, rice, vegetables, whatnot. But they also sell dogs and bat, basically a, a menu with zoo animals on it. I watched a video where they just deep fry a bat alive, pull it out, toss it on a plate, and some asshole eats it. And they have these dead animals or dying animals stacked on top of one another, pissing and shitting on top of each other all day. Now, a lot of these cuisines come from a history of being so poor that they didn't have anything else to eat. So, so they just ate what they could capture. But do they really have to serve meat from endangered animals to rich assholes? My sympathies can only go so far. But instead of animal rights groups fighting against these wet markets, they are far too tired from their victory lap after having the design changed on the animal cracker boxes. Let's all take a moment and take them seriously. Let's talk about a, another meme I see. I see a lot. It goes, now that we know who the essential workers are, explain to me why professional athletes make so much more money if they are basically useless when it matters. Okay. In all honesty, if a cashier learns how to throw a 98 mile an hour fastball with accuracy, then I think he or she deserves a raise. All right. I think that's all I'm going to give you this month, but I think next month or the next episode, we'll cover more focusing on uh, China, 
the media, and maybe the risk of another depression. We're going to dig deeper in the scary stuff that lies ahead, people. But let me give you a, a quick list if you're sitting at home doing nothing. Number one thing you should do, make and keep a schedule and stick with it. Number two, exercise. Anything, jump rope, go for a run, sit-ups, shadow box. I keep hearing everyone say I'm going to get fat during the shutdown. Why? You're not quarantined to the refrigerator. Number three, try to eat on a regular schedule. Number four, get eight hours of sleep if you don't have kids. Number five, reach out to people you haven't spoken to in a while. They may be just as bored or even as depressed as you might be. I just read an article about how the suicide hotline that usually gets 20 calls a week is now up to 20 a day. So don't be afraid to check in on people. Keep all this in mind because if, if you're not taking care of yourself mentally and physically during a challenging time, it's only going to feel worse and worse. Anxiety gets worse. Depression gets worse. And you're going to be you're going to really need to be vigilant for what happens next. Because while you're sleeping and eating and not keeping one eye open, I assure you the kings and queens above us, they're not going to let a crisis go to waste. All right, all right, let's hop into our continuing series on education. Have you ever had a bad teacher? Have you ever wondered why bad teachers don't get fired? What institution has the most influence and spending power over politicians? To answer those questions, we're going to learn about the teachers' unions. This is Chapter 3, Fire the Teachers. So, what we're going to do is go over the history of the teachers' union, talk about what the problems are, and try to find solutions. The first teachers' unions were the National Education Association in 1857 and the more well-known American Federation of Teachers in 1916, the ATF. The ATF would see their numbers grow during the Depression era due to their stance on better teachers' pay. Also, the Communist Party became a big influence at the time, so you can see they started off on the right foot. The main purpose of the union is to give power to the teachers by advocating for better wages, better benefits, and job security. Now let's talk about the teachers' unions through the 1930s to the 1970s. And that brings us to the 1980s. Trust me, you didn't want me going over all that. So from the 1980s to today, the AFT and the NEA have contributed about 30% more to federal political campaigns than any other corporation, than any other union, making them the most influential lobbying group in America today. So what's the problem? Well, let's start by answering the most important question. Are teacher unions good for students? Right now, the U.S. ranks 27th in the world. So, like I always do, I ask the question, was it always like this? It was not. In the 1970s, the U.S. was ranked number one. In the 1990s, the U.S. was still in the top 10. So what happened? Some of it can be blamed on the lowering of disciplinary measures as covered in Chapter 2. Some of it can be blamed on complacency. When you're number one and you slip to number two or even number 10, it doesn't really pop up on anyone's radar with any sense of urgency. It isn't until the manufacturing and factory jobs start to disappear, then you realize your child isn't educated or qualified enough to get the engineering job that's available. Then you start to care. When the unions are asked about the U.S. rankings in the world, the response is that they are underfunded. Now, if the schools are underfunded, what you'd want to do is compare it to something. I choose the number one education system in the world, which is, at the moment, Finland. How much does Finland spend per student? Around $11,000. But the U.S. spends $16,000 per student. 
So I don't believe we are underfunded. I don't think that's the problem. And just to be clear, this whole thing I'm doing isn't about being number one in the world. It's about making sure students, young kids, have the education that will prepare them for the economy that they are entering. Right now, it is not. You also have to understand that a place like Finland has a population of a little, little over 5 million people compared to the 330 million in the U.S. One of those countries is going to have an easier time to make sure no child is left behind. But with the amount that's spent, we should at least shoot for the top 10 again. Another thing I hear is teachers don't get paid as much as teachers in other countries, which is true. And you can imagine a lack of pay and overwhelming students may actually burn a teacher out. I can understand that, but there is a severe fact that teachers advocates leave out when comparing their salaries to others. As a teacher in Finland, you do almost earn as much as a doctor or a lawyer. You are respected. You also need a master's degree to teach there, which everyone seems to leave out. You earn your right to teach. It is actually easier to become a doctor or a lawyer in Finland than it is to become a teacher. They also spend two hours a week on teacher development which has yielded great results. Do we make it too easy in this country for a teacher to get a job? Continuing the comparisons to other countries, yes. Well, if it's relatively easy to teach, then there should be a fast and easy way to filter out good teachers from bad teachers, right? Nope. The teachers' unions fight tooth and nail against teacher evaluations any chance they get, which, in their defense, is their job to make sure teachers have job security. And they are doing a great job. One in 57 doctors will lose their medical license every year. One in 97 lawyers will lose their law license every year. For teachers, one in 2,500 will lose their jobs. The unions stand against teacher evaluations because they believe they are unfair. While my stance is, tell that to every student that gets evaluated every day, every week, every year, for years. Unfair? Too bad. So how, how hard is it to fire bad teachers? Well... First thing you would need to do if you were a school administrator is to make a comprehensive list of incompetent acts the teacher performed, and you would need the teacher to sign that paperwork acknowledging those acts. And if the teacher wanted, they could attach a note explaining their side of the story. This would lead to an unsatisfactory evaluation. From there, you would have to file with the state's education board as they are the only ones with firing power. From there, the teacher would be put in a room like indoor sus suspension to await a hearing. This may take a year, but don't worry, the teacher will get paid for doing nothing this entire time. Next step, the hearing. The administration and the bad teacher can each have a lawyer, and if the administration wins the case, the teacher will be fired. In the last step, you will then face multiple lawsuits from the teacher's union and their lawyers. That will continue on for years and years, all the while the bad teacher continues to get paid. Average cost to fire a teacher? 200000 taxpayer dollars. In LA, in 2010, the school district spent $3.5 million just trying to fire seven teachers. This is the result of tenure. Teachers receive tenure after an average of two years of work. Before two years, they can be evaluated and removed relatively easy. After that, it becomes easier and less costly to just simply not fire the bad teacher. Well, what does that lead to? Imagine your work, where you work your ass off and do a great job. Meanwhile, the person next to you accomplishes nothing. Imagine if you made the same paycheck as them, no matter how hard you work because of the rules in the teacher's union. After a while, 
you may head out for greener pastures. And that's what happens in schools. You have good teachers that care. They leave for better pay and better work culture. Bad teacher comes in and never leaves. And in a very short amount of time, you create an incubator of stupidity. Now, before we get into solving these problems, another point teachers unions like to make is states with larger members and influence have better outcomes than states that don't. This is true. Massachusetts schools have a tremendous amount of union influence and are and Massachusetts is recognized as having the best K-12 education. On average, Massachusetts has a 50% proficiency in math and reading. And this is celebrated. 50%? If every state had the same scores in K-12 through like Massachusetts, we would move our rankings from 27th in the world to like 26th, and maybe we'd be tied. It's not a win for the unions. So how can we solve this mess? Number one, you would want extended time when tenure goes into effect, maybe five years, or just simply get rid of it altogether. You want better evaluations of teachers just like they evaluate kids. Do you want shitty teachers evaluating your kids? Number three, your school administrators should be in charge of the firing process to make the firing process easier and it would lower taxpayer cost. Lowering the cost of this process could be used to improve teachers' pay. But to get all this, you have to understand the system, and the system is referred to as the blob. I'll break this down as simple as I can. The first part of the system is the teachers. They are paid by the taxpayers and they pay union dues. Second part, the unions. The government collects union dues from the teachers and delivers it to the unions. Third part is the heads of the unions. Their job depends on increasing the flow of money. More schools, more teachers, more teacher union money, more power for the head of the union. The fourth part, influence. The head of the teachers union will use some of that money to create a campaign pushing for better schools and better pay. Part five, the politician. He or she will use the union's campaign as part of their own campaign, with 95% of union money going towards the Democratic side to outspend their opponent. And the last part, the election. If the politician wins, they will get more money to the schools, which some might go to the teachers, and some of the teachers' money goes to the unions. Some of that money goes to the politician for his next election. And he, and she, he or she will advocate for more money for the school, and the cycle continues. And the taxpayer dollars gets used and abused. And that is how you end up with the most expensive school program in the history of the country and in the world. That's how you end up with your money going to the wrong places. And if you were paying attention, there's one thing that isn't part of the system. The students. Why? Because students don't vote. And students don't have money. So why listen to them? So how do you stop this cycle of money? Well, it goes all the way back to episode one of this show. Campaign finance reform, people. Listen to episode one again about the contribution cap. Limit the money in politics. I don't know how a non-voter, an independent, or a Republican voter sits back and allows their taxpayer dollars to go to a system like the teachers' unions and allow their tax dollars to fund a politician they're voting against. If the NRA was taking tax dollars and supporting Republicans, you know full well Democratic voters would have stuffed that shit in a second. Campaign finance reform, folks. In the last movement, how do you make reforms in the teachers' union? How do you take on the most influential group in politics? 
there's only one group big enough to take on the unions and have more influence, and that is the parents. Parents need to create their own vision or version of a, a union. It would be an unstoppable group with unstoppable influence. And if you want better pay and a better life for the next generation of students, this has to get done. It's the only way to stop the machine. It's the only way to stop the blob. Kids need to be ready for the world that we leave them. That's all I got today. Leave a review, comment, like stuff. You know what to do. This was Solving Problems and Starting New Ones. Read a book.